<laughs> well, if you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 4, as much as obviously I'm excited uh, for this afternoon, we have much more important work to get to. You read my email, hopefully, that I sent out on Friday. We have business to do. We have business to do in God's Word. A far superior priority for us than this day of Super Bowl Sunday. The title of today's message is The Fruit of Perfecting Love. Last week, we looked at the advantage of the why versus the how and discussed that at length. We stated that strong theology produces strong ethics. The theology being the why behind it all, the ethics being the how. And that said, there's another aspect of life in general that can fan the ethical flame, if you will. Whether a diet, sports, career, just to name a few examples, there's a tremendous benefit in knowing the end result, namely a once-before-accomplished goal. As for my bangles, that will take place today. They will be encouraged to spur ahead for more championships because they will accomplish that today, Chad. <laughs> oh, I love it. We're a serious, committed people of Christ, but we also love and enjoy having fun too. In other cases, maybe it's not an accomplished goal of the past, but it ends up being more of a leap of faith, if you will. Perhaps never experiencing experienced it before. Either way, in the instance where we see the result, it often becomes a major incentive for us in future attempts. We've experienced the victory. We've experienced the feeling of success. What's more, we know what it takes to get the job done. With that said, there's still a major limitation to those illustrations. They're all concerned with one's own efforts. We are and will always be a people of conviction and effort. It's our responsibility to work hard. Repetition. However, we're also keenly aware of our potential for failure as we apply ourselves wholeheartedly to those tasks. Nevertheless, what if we could find an even greater incentive? One relating to the far greater priority of spiritual victory in life. An incentive that's concerned with the strength outside of our own. What's more, an outcome that's perfected and accomplished by God. What about the ability to see the conclusion of our spiritual fruit? 
What about the fruit of God's perfecting love? Hence our title for today. This morning we'll close out chapter 4 with John's desire to encourage and equip believers by God's perfecting love. That's his purpose and that's his theme in this section, verses 13 through 21. Believers are encouraged and equipped by God's perfecting love. In this passage, John will identify three fruits of that perfecting love. Fruits that ultimately empower believers to love one another. We've talked about this in length. It's a major focus for John. In all reality, three fruits that spur us on to even any area of Christian practice and obedience. As for implication and application, we'll answer the question, what does God's perfecting love produce in the believer? By God's grace, these three fruits will inspire and drive us in the area of loving one another and practicing obedience and then ultimately answering the question of what this perfecting love produces. With that said, would you stand with me, please? And we'll read our text, our passage for this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You may be seated. Now, our first fruit will be number one, taken from verses 13 through 16, assurance. Assurance. Now, in our message titled, Rest Assured, we examined how one can rest in the assurance of their salvation. 
In chapter 3, verse 19, on that message, we read, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Now, assurance of salvation is a canon of momentum for practicing righteousness. What's more, to continue the illustration regarding a canon, the Christian finds his momentum in the knowledge that that cannonball will reach its target with perfect accuracy. No one will ever snatch you out of the Lord's hands. No amount of weakness in your flesh could ever condemn you. This is where we find and know the motivation behind assurance. The motivation to practice righteousness. Now in verses 13 through 16, John begins to elaborate on this fruit of God's perfecting love, assurance. You can see, I won't read it again, but you can see in verse 13 how he reminds the churches of the Holy Spirit's role in this fruit of assurance. This is actually now the fourth time that John has mentioned the Spirit's role. In chapter 2, verse 20, and then in chapter 2, verse 27, he spoke of the illuminating role of the Spirit. That word illumination pertaining to the ability of the Christian by way of the Spirit to ascertain biblical truth, to rightly divide the Word of God. Moreover, in chapter 3, verse 24, he connected illumination with our obedience. In that passage, in that verse, verse 24 of chapter 3, he said, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So, given this correlating context, it's vital for us to remember that the Spirit illumines the truth of his word and initiates our obedience. Not to mention, he confirms our assurance. We spoke of this even in our message, the power of the Spirit, as we approached Pentecost Sunday not too long ago. We remain in him, never departing, forever assured of our covenantal, unconditional, personal relationship with Christ. Now, when looking at verse 14, there's indeed a sense in which John's testifying to his apostolic authority. He did this in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 as well. The apostles were first-hand eyewitnesses to Christ. Take a look at the beginning of verse 14. He says, 
we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son. Now, one can wholeheartedly rest assured in the reliability of the Scriptures as communicated by the apostles as eyewitness accounts. Nevertheless, given the Spirit's context of verse 13, as well as specifically chapter 2, verse 27, one can also know that the Spirit testifies to the reality of this truth and our assurance as well. With that said, can we find encouragement in the Spirit's testimony to this fact? It's His anointing which testifies to the truth of His Word. While at the same time, internalizing and personalizing the truth of that word specifically and intimately for you. Some of you have had the privilege of being with us on Wednesdays in our prayer time. We've taken up the habit of praying through the scriptures and applying those scriptures in our prayer even to ourselves. For example... In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, considering the Spirit's testimony to the fact that you are assured in Christ, we might say it like this. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit that internalizes, illumines the truth first in order that we might be able to rightly divide it and then applies it to our life. Testifying to the reality of our status and our state as redeemed and reconciled before our Lord and Savior. Moreover, just in case one was tempted to doubt the reach of God's perfecting love and assurance. And John reminds them of why the Son was sent. Look at the back half of verse 14. He was sent to be the Savior of the world. Now, first off, it's important to note The term world here is clearly understood regarding Jews and Gentiles for two specific reasons. John's not a universalist. Christ is not saving every single human being that has ever lived. And number two, the phrase Savior of the world is only used one other time by John. And interesting enough, He uses it regarding the Samaritan response in John chapter 4. Notwithstanding, 
How was John seeking to encourage these believers in the churches of Asia Minor with this phrase, the Savior of the world? Here's the helpful point. God shows no partiality. He is no respecter of persons. The Father sent the Son, as we discussed last week, with a perfect purpose and an incredible price. To do what? To save his people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation. Within the context of the Gnostic threat, this would have been extremely encouraging. Special knowledge that might have seemed unattainable had nothing to do with these believers' assurance as the Gnostics tried to infiltrate with. You need this special knowledge to know who you are in Christ. Think of it from this perspective. There are some, perhaps maybe even here today, that struggle with assurance because of a supposed lack of special knowledge. A sort of special knowledge in areas of biblical truth. Unfortunately, at times, a sort of special knowledge outside of Scripture. A sort of desire for something more. A sort of feeling of knowledge that seems only reserved for the more intelligent or of superior background. This often, unfortunately, leads to a feeling of unworthiness. That I don't have the intelligence for the knowledge that God requires of me, that I've come from a lesser persuasion or background. God's word here is saying, concerning the Son, He was sent to be the Savior to all people from all different backgrounds and persuasions. The world, Jews and Gentiles. For those of us, all of us in this room, that's an incredibly encouraging point considering we're all Gentiles. He was sent regardless of any type of special knowledge or environment that one feels as a need for acceptance with God. Beloved, take comfort in this. No matter where you came from, no matter what your background, no matter what level of knowledge, God sent his son to redeem his people from throughout the entire world. Amen. That said, there is one simple point of knowledge which he requires. Look at verse 15. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Praise the Lord. The Spirit is the initiating first cause and author of our salvation. Without his drawing, we'd be forever lost. We'll see here shortly in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Nevertheless, John now begins to tie up this assurance with an explanation of our responsibility. Look at verse 15 again. It reads, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. A couple things here for us to consider concerning our responsibility. This charge is a reminder from John's words just previously in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 where he used this word confesses several times. It's a point of emphasis for him. It's not just, and I mentioned this several weeks ago, an intellectual affirmation. It's an open allegiance to Christ, to his divine nature as well as his humanity. Jesus described this type of open allegiance In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, when he said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. This is our responsibility. And listen, not just in the simple act of when we confessed in open allegiance to Christ as our Lord and Savior at the moment of salvation. But it's our responsibility to to live a life of open allegiance and confession daily unto Christ. Now, I must say, in order to be true to this text, my primary preaching emphasis for today And this passage is the same as what John's would have been to be true to the text. And that is to encourage you. Although, as your friend, as your faithful shepherd, might I challenge you as well. How are we doing in a life of confession, open allegiance? To Christ. The knowledge of this great assurance in which the Spirit testifies on our behalf, in which the Word of God testifies on our behalf, I know is producing fruit in your lives, many of your lives. I see it. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters in Christ. Be encouraged. 
Nevertheless, are we still looking to fan our flame? As Paul told Timothy, concerning obedience, concerning open allegiance. What about baptism? Have we openly pledged our allegiance unto Christ, not as a means of salvation, but because we desire to confess before the whole world an outward work, an inward work, and expressing on an outward level? What about witnessing? What about discipleship? Are we discipling others? Are we desiring to be discipled by others? Open allegiance, confession unto Christ. Because God abides in you, because he's protecting and keeping you, would that light an even greater fire behind your responsibility to live a life of open allegiance, confession unto Christ. What's more, might it cause us even to love one another even more. With that said, let's turn our attention to verse 16 and wrap this first fruit of assurance up with John's sort of summary of assurance. Look at verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Let me offer two quick points here and then one for application before we move to our second fruit. Even within this verse, John once again demonstrates the need for our responsibility. We have believed. However, let us never forget the right perspective behind it all. We see it even within this verse. We've seen it throughout this letter and we see it throughout the pages of all Scripture. Similar to last week, notice this God-centered theology or why behind our responsibility. In the middle of verse 16, he says, God, God is love. Why can we love? Why can we believe our responsibility? Because his nature, as we demonstrated last week, is our strength and our focus in the responsibility. God-centered versus man-centered. You've heard me mention 1 Corinthians 15.10 often a verse near and dear to my heart, but it's such a reflection of these two truths. As Paul says, I work harder than anyone, my responsibility, yet, and even as our song today, 
Not I, but the grace of God that is in me. That will drive our engine of responsibility. And then lastly, application-wise, because of this great perfecting love that God has bestowed upon us, a love which produces total and complete assurance before Him, Don't be anxious, my friends. As Jim prayed this morning, some of you are going through difficult times. Some broken in spirit, some broken in health. Perhaps you're tempted even in this moment to be anxious. We have all been there. And we may even be there now. Might I encourage you? Might I admonish you? Don't be anxious, my friends. Jesus said it will not add a single hour to your span of life. God knows the beginning from the end. Isaiah 46.10 What's more, He's purposed everything for your good. No matter what trial seems to increase and enhance your anxiety, you can be assured of the fact that he is working out his counsel for your good. That said, we need to believe it, brothers and sisters. We need to live it. This great confidence that we have in our assurance enables us to do so. What's more, it's an assurance like this that raises our confidence through the roof. And that's our second fruit this morning in, in, in response to the question, what does God's perfecting love produce? It produces confidence We'll see this in verses 17 and 18. Look with me at verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, right away, there are several massive grammatical and contextual elements within this verse which lay the groundwork for our confidence. Now let me, let me explain them to you first and then I promise you we will look at the significance of them. First is this verb perfected. It's written in a way in which what transpired in the past continues to produce Ongoing benefits, not to mention. It's also written in a way where the believer receives the perfection. Additionally, notice these two little words that John uses, with us. Verse 
John, inspired by the Spirit, distinctively chose with us in contrast to what he just used several verses earlier in verse 12. You'll see in verse 12, he says his love is perfected in us. There's a difference. With us relates to our love and confidence with God. However, the in us relates to our love and confidence with other people. Once again, we'll explain the significance. And then one more to top it off. This word perfected, it's the same word that Jesus used on the cross. In John 19, 28, regarding all things being accomplished. So, why are each of these details massive in our confidence? Let's break them down. First, our perfecting love from God was accomplished in the moment of our salvation. We are assured in Christ and we understand that fully. Yet, it continues to produce ongoing benefits. What's more, our perfecting love from God is solely the result of his initiating act of sovereign grace. This is extremely encouraging to us, given our nature. What's more, although our relationships with others at times fall short, with God, it's locked, stock, and barrel, signed, sealed, and delivered, secure in Christ. Never to fail. Amen? That's a Gatorade moment. And then finally, in the same way that Christ perfectly accomplished everything upon the cross, he perfectly accomplished his love with us. We've seen that throughout this letter. Why is that the case? You can see as verse 17 indicates. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. In chapter 2, verse 28, John said, You will not shrink away at his coming. You can be assured of confidence. This word confidence, similar to the confession previously, has the idea of bold and open courage. I love the two together. Open allegiance, bold and open courage. Moreover, not only do believers have this God-centered confidence in the day of judgment, we have it today. 
at the back half of verse 17. He says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, on the surface, this seems somewhat difficult to understand, but it's fairly simple. As he is, is written in the present tense, communicates an ongoing action. We've mentioned this several times. I said this in the first service, but many of us now are becoming Greek theologians as you understand the present tense communicates an ongoing action. We'll get to the point where I won't even have to reference that anymore. You'll know exactly what that entails. Whether John's referring to the past or the present as he is, which could be either or because of this tense, we have application either way. Today, we have confidence. We're in the world as he was in the world, as he did love. Or... Today, we have confidence we're in this world as he is in the world. As even John 17 dictates in his high priestly prayer that he is praying even now for you. All that to say, we have confidence because we walk in in the light with bold, open courage because we walk as he walked in the same manner as he did with bold, open courage and confidence. We walk in the light as he walked in the light. We have confidence in that today, not just in the day of judgment. John described this in chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. What's more, this confidence that we have is without fear as well. Look with me at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, when thinking of confidence, there's no doubt that a suitable antonym would be fear. What's the opposite of bold and open courage, but intense concern and distress? His word proclaims, perfect love casts out fear. God desires for you to manifest confidence today. And then also from an eternal 
perspective. Your concern, your distress in whatever area of Christian life, practice, obedience, or trial you're in the midst of today has been hurled away. Perfect love, cast out fear. Why is that the case? In many respects, it relates to our assurance. John states that fear involves punishment. This word punishment is only used one other time in all of Scripture. It relates directly to eternal punishment. We all understand this. In our lives, apart from grace, prior to our responsibility, prior to his drawing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we daily practice, past tense, sin. Why our guilty and fearful consciences condemned us, even as Romans 2.15 clearly demonstrates, that our conscience bears witness to the fact that we violated the law of Christ. Even that guilty, fearful conscience, in many respects, often pertain to a natural sense, not just a spiritual. If it not for the grace of God, the end of this verse would have been a reflection of all of our lives. Which states, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. That reflecting a life of fear and punishment and eternal damnation in hell. Nevertheless, as I stated, what is the emphasis of this passage but encouragement? You, brother and sister in Christ, this is not you. Although at times you practice, no, I should say at times you fall short in fear in your flesh, you don't practice fear. You are experiencing the fruit of affecting love. Coming back to the work of the Spirit and how He internalizes and testifies and illumines the truth which assures in our heart, which builds confidence in us. I come back to Romans 8.15 and I say that each and every one of us, you brother and sister in Christ, can internalize and personalize this verse as we did with Philippians 1.6. For I have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But I have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which I cry out, Abba, Father. Amen. That is the Spirit's 
proclamation, explanation to you here today, dear brother and sister. You do not fear. Perfecting love is having its way with you. So, in light of such confidence that we have in Christ, how might we respond? John MacArthur is quoted as saying, and I agree, application belongs to the Spirit. That said, I'll offer one thought of application, all the while understanding and challenging you that the Spirit is your primary revealer of what God wants to do with His Word in your life. But let me offer you one. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. Because you do not fear, because you are assured in Christ, can we go forward and make disciples? What does that look like for you? You have what you need. Don't fear. Go forth in action. And that's our third fruit from this passage is number three, action. Number one, assurance. Number two, confidence. And number three, action. Now, to close this third fruit out, I think I have the liberty to do this because John does it throughout the letter, and we've mentioned this several times, how often he's not logical, logical and sequential in how he communicates. So I'm going to go out of order too as well. For a specific reason. I want to first briefly address verses 20 and 21. And then I'll conclude with verse 19. You'll see verse 20 continues to confirm the hypocrisy of one who claims to love God yet manifest hatred towards his brother. John establishes this, establishes this by way of the argument of the lesser to the greater. Simply put, if you practice hatred, lack of love towards the one that you see, it's impossible for you to practice love to the one that you don't see. And then in verse 21, John, in essence, gives a summary statement of all of chapter 4, similar to our message revolving around chapter 3, verse 23, and the priority for the believer to manifest the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor, the two greatest commandments. 
in essence, a summary statement of what we see throughout all of chapter 4. To love God and to love your neighbor. With that said, verse 19. Short and sweet, but oh so powerful regarding action. Hence my reason for concluding here. At the end of the day, is this not our goal? That our theology, that our why behind our ethics, our how, would produce people that walk the talk. So, how does it help? Look again at the verse. We love because he first loved us. In chapter 4, verse 10, John stated, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. In John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 13, we read, We who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We could go on and on and on concerning Scripture's testimony to the sovereignty of God in salvation. Spurgeon, in his comments concerning this verse, stated, and I quote, From all eternity, the Lord looked upon his people with an eye of love. And as nothing can be before eternity, his love was first. Once again, there's so much more we could say, but allow me to drive this fruit home in this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31 reads, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Why is this fruit of action from God's perfecting love so powerful it's because his initiating act of perfecting love had absolutely nothing to do with the will of man 
Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I mentioned this last week. But it's this type of God-centered theology and ethic practice, I should say, which leads to our ethics, which produces a lightning bolt for action. A lightning bolt, as we mentioned last week, for humility and grace. We love God and we love one another because the divine gardener first transformed our barren and desolate land into a fruitful oasis. Not to mention, not just this lightning bolt, does it serve for our love for God and for our brethren? But it serves as a lightning bolt in our action, in our love, in our practice for the lost. This type of understanding has often been labeled incorrectly as a distraction or a deterrence to evangelism. Could never be. If we understand and rightly divide the word of truth. Throughout church history, pastors and theologians with this type of God-centered understanding and theology have continued to demonstrate how false that claim is. Whitfield, Edwards, Spurgeon, Bunyan, Wilberforce, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.C. Ryle. Today, we could mention many, but John MacArthur. All of those men aside, great men who understood That we love because he first loved us. Set them aside for a moment. What about you? Because God so loved you first. When there was nothing in you to love. Utterly unable. To remedy your lost condition. Or. Because all that the father gives to the son. Will come to him. With these. Certain. Absolute. Perfect. Truths. Cause us to sprint forth. In action. I'm going to run through a wall right about now. Will you run with me? Because God has given us a responsibility to play a part in it. Hallelujah. To quote Spurgeon again, 
He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap over our bodies, dead bodies, before they get there. You see how it drives the action like no other? Because of our confidence in God, not man. Or any words that I need to speak to convince the dead sinner to repent and trust Christ. All that the Father gives the Son will come to Him. Would these truths cause us to pick up our cross and follow Him in action? Would these certain truths, God-centered theology, cause us to lose our life for His sake in order that He might win it? Save it. What does that look like for you? Pray with me as we seek the Spirit to reveal according to His Word how you might respond. Bow your heads. Holy Spirit, we plead with you, reveal how we might be a people of action. Equip us with the confidence that we know, that you know, the beginning from the end. That everything works according to the counsel of your will. Holy Spirit, affirm our hearts and this great truth of assurance. Cause us to not be anxious in what you've called of us. And what you've providentially trial or blessing bestowed upon us. Nothing will separate us from your love. In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.